this is the Saturday that we celebrate uh, Epiphany. Of all the parts of the church calendar, Epiphany may be the one most glossed over. Um, Advent, Lent, Christmas, Easter, even Pentecost. Our church calendar is, um, is laced with important days. Epiphany is uh, one of those that if we're being, am I, do I need to go to a handheld maybe? It's a little shaky. What you, maybe if I sit down here, let's see if maybe it's a dead spot. Y'all forgive us. Technology around here is one of the issues too. Huh? All right. So as a part of the Christian church, we are in this season called Epiphany. Some celebrate it as a season. Some celebrate it just as a day. It is the 12th day after Christmas. You know, the 12 days of Christmas. And um, it is a part of the year when the church has essentially decided that not only do we need to recognize the presence of God in Advent and Christmas, the coming of God in the person of Jesus uh, at Christmas time. But shortly after that, we should celebrate, the early church fathers decided we should celebrate the appearance and the manifestation of Jesus, the erupting of Jesus on to the scene of ministry. Uh, the word epiphany actually uh, makes sense then that it comes from the Greek word epiphania. And epiphania means appearance, uh, appearing, or manifestation. Second uh, Timothy 1, 8 through 10, it's actually interesting when you look through Scripture at some of the places where Epiphania is used. But in Second Timothy and Titus, the uh, pastoral epistles, it's used quite a bit. Um, first chapter, a couple of verses, maybe verse 8, 9. Don't be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Interesting. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The grace was there. But now it has been revealed through the appearing, Epiphaniah. It has been revealed through the epiphany of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, the grace was there, life was there, immortality was there, but epiphany or epiphania says that these things have now been revealed and manifested. They've been brought to light, epiphany. Another passage is in Titus, the other pastoral epistle, uh, Titus 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared. Notice, it doesn't say the grace of God, um, the grace of God has been created. It says now in Christ Jesus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. Isn't that lovely? Bringing salvation to everyone. Of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and in the present age to live godly lives while we wait for the blessed hope 
and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Manifestation, epiphany. Then Titus 3, one more, um, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, God saved us. Not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to God's mercy through the water of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Epiphania. Not when it began, because it was here, Paul made clear, before the foundation of the world. But when it finally appeared, when Zechariah, I guess, am I going in and out or is that just me? Glenn, why don't we just set me up a boom mic and I'll, I'll try to do it that way. Forgive us, we never know. There's just no rhyme or reason to it, is it, Glenn? It's the chief's fault. It's the chief's fault, that's right. It's the Kansas City Chiefs fault. John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, actually used the word epiphania, or the Greek uh, translation of his word, um, when he held up the promise of his little boy. And the Bible says he lifted him up and he said, This child has been given to Israel that the grace of God and the glory of God might dawn on us. Dawn on us there is epiphania. Classically, the word was used to uh, illustrate the sun coming up on the horizon, maybe even a king coming back from war when he would appear on the horizon, or even an enemy that would appear on the horizon. When anything was appearing on the horizon, that was epiphania. The light was breaking upon us. The gist of the word, and I think this is what's really important, the gist of the word is that something that is already a reality is finally made clear. Something that is, is actually manifest. God's presence, God's love, God's grace, this is the Christian message. All of these things that have been there since the world began, yet often unrecognized, in epiphany, they are finally recognized. Three stories that the Christian church has used to illustrate epiphany through the years are, first of all, the appearance of God in Christ to the Magi, or the Magi. When the three wise men, well, we say, you know, the Bible doesn't actually say there were three wise men. Did you know that? It says there were wise men who brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so we just kind of figured if there were three different things, there were three wise men. But the Bible doesn't say there were three. Um, but when the wise men came, these Zoroastrian priests from a long way away, when they came and they uh, knelt down and brought gifts to the Christ child, this is the, this is the chief scripture that the church has used to celebrate the Feast of Epiphany because this was when God appeared in Christ to the Gentile people even before a church was created, even before um, Jesus even spoke in ministry of ministry to the Gentiles, it was portended, it was prophesied through these men coming from afar, following stars, actually, astrologists slash astronomers who had commingled with Hebrew people some five centuries before when the Hebrew people were in captivity and now they were showing up. While the Hebrew prophets were just miles down the road, Jesus was not epiphanied. He was not manifest. He was not appeared 
to them, but he appeared to these magi who came from afar, from another religion. The second scripture that the church, and this is generally the church of the East, the Orthodox Church, celebrates the baptism of Jesus. This was the moment they say that Jesus erupted onto the scene when, as a carpenter, he came down to the river, and when John saw him, when he saw his cousin, something about the way the light hit him, John was arrested and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John looked at him and said, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and I'm not even worthy to reach down and undo his shoelaces. I must decrease that he might increase. Jesus came near and asked his cousin, would you baptize me? And John, overwhelmed, said, I can't baptize you. You should baptize me. To which Jesus said, no, I must do this that all righteousness be fulfilled. And then as he went down to the water, the Bible said that the supernatural just continued to flow as the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit floated down. It looked like a dove and it sat upon his shoulder. And as it did, a voice from the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the stuff of epiphany. And then finally, the last scripture that the church often uses is the scripture in John 2, where Jesus was at a wedding feast. And the Bible tells us that at this wedding feast, wedding feasts were generally 48 hours long, and at the end of the 48th hour of celebration, at the end of the 48th hour of celebration, the wedding would take place, and then there would be another day of celebration. But at the end of that celebration of something really terrible that had taken place. They had run completely out of Welch's grape juice. And as they had run out of sparkling grape juice, non-alcoholic of course, we all grew up believing, the people began to complain. And as the people complained, Mary, the mother of Jesus, said, go tell my son your problem and whatever he says do, do it. And the people went to Jesus, and Jesus, you remember, said, bring me the water pots. And they brought him the water pots full of water, and he touched the water pots, and from them came wine. And the people literally said at the end of the second day that the wine that Jesus created or performed a miracle for was actually better than the wine that flowed at the first. They were amazed. These scriptures all are the stuff of epiphany. They are Jesus erupting onto the scene, whether to the Gentile world through the Magi, through the voice of the Father falling from heaven and his baptism when the Bible tells us disciples begin to flock to him and follow him and the crowds begin to grow or the first miracle. The Magi really spoke the great words of Epiphany when they said, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? The question of epiphany is that question. Where is he? Where is God? Where is the divine? Where might we find this that we've been looking for, that hunger of every human soul? Epiphany is that space. The 12 days of Christmas offer us that space where the presence of God has come, but the presence of God has not been recognized. That differentiation, that distinction between the presence of God and the manifestation of God, which is so clear in Scripture and so clear in all of our lives. The Bible tells us that again and again Jesus would be present with people who did not 
understand him, see him, to whom uh, they, he was not manifest. The Bible said that one day he went back to his hometown, and when he went into his hometown, he had been performing miracles everywhere. And as a human being, sentiment and nostalgia obviously drew him back, and he wanted to perform miracles. But the Bible said as he came to them that he could do no strong work among them. He could save a few people from colds and psoriasis and minor illnesses, but the Bible says that he couldn't do any work because they saw him as a carpenter. The reality, and this again is the essence of epiphany, the reality is Jesus was there. He was fully present. He was never you know, 50% there or 75% there. He was there, and as he walks up to the young boy in the wheelchair that he had grown up with his whole life, and he reaches out to touch him as he had touched others, and the boy said, I remember you. Jesus speaks to him, healing and wholeness, and the boy says, you're the carpenter that built the addition on the back of our house, and the hand of Jesus recoils, present but not appearing, there but not manifest, incarnationally Emmanuel, God with us but not manifest, Jesus often the Bible says, went about putting himself in proximity to all, equidistant from all in faith. The Bible said one day that he was in a large group of people, incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us in flesh. And as he's there in flesh, the Bible says that they were shoulder to shoulder with him. And all of a sudden, like electricity hit him, Jesus stopped. This is epiphany. He stopped and he turned around and said, somebody just touched me. And as he looked to the crowd, the Bible said his disciples were almost embarrassed and they pulled him aside and they said, Lord, why would you say somebody touched you? There's hundreds of people thronging you shoulder to shoulder with you. Surely many have touched you. And Jesus said, you don't understand. Many have physically touched me, but somebody spiritually, psychically, psychologically, emotionally just touched me. I know it. Listen to this, because virtue went out of me. Jesus literally felt a transfusion, something left his body. Really interesting is that word virtue is the Greek word dunamis, which is the same word in Acts 1.8 that Jesus looked at his disciples and said, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive dunamis. No wonder a chapter later when Peter and John were going up to the temple and a lame man was there at the gate of the temple and he said, would you please give me money? They said, we don't have money, but such as we have, we give to you. Transfusions, that's who we are. People who literally may not have a lot of money to give, but we have God to give. We have the divine to give. Literally, dunamis flows out of us and can be transfused into others. The Bible says that Jesus looked around and finally he said, who was it? You know who you were. The woman raised her hand sheepishly and said, it was, it was me. And Jesus said, woman, your faith has made you whole today. Hundreds, now think about this. Hundreds of people approximating God. Hundreds of people in the presence of Jesus and yet epiphany for one. The stories in scripture are 
all through. The Bible says that Jesus one day was with his disciples in Samaria, this place where there was so much uh, antipathy between the Jews and the Samaritans, religious tension between these two groups. And Jesus was there one day, and the Bible said all of a sudden he looked at his disciples and he said, you know, I really wish you would go back into town and get some food and come back. The disciples headed into town, and evidently as they were going into town, they passed a woman at an unusual hour, headed past them on the road to the well. This was a woman who had been married five times and was presently living with a man and most likely had been shunned even by her own people and had to go to the well at inordinate hours, middle of the afternoon it was. And there at the well all by herself, Jesus came to her standing beside the well, incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. And as he stood there, the Bible said, instead of preaching to her, instead of imposing faith upon her, Jesus did what Jesus often did. Jesus wisely looked at her and asked her to do something for him. He said, would you give me a cup of water? And the Bible said she looked at him and said, you would take a cup of, you would take a cup of water from me? My own people, the Samaritans, won't take a cup of water from me. How could a Jew, how could a rabbi take water from me? The Bible says Jesus affirmed that indeed he would receive water from her hand. And as she gave him a cup of water, Jesus looked at her and said, this is the stuff of epiphany. He said, woman, if you knew, if you knew who had asked you for a cup of water, she head down, ashamed, buried religiously by her life. She opened her heart just a little bit and Jesus intervened and with grace said, please understand, I know you. I know about the five husbands. I know about the guy that you're living with right now. A shame overwhelmed her and her face blushed. Jesus looked at her and said, you do not need a message on the commandment about adultery. You don't need shamed about morality and sexuality. Jesus looked at her and said, you're thirsty. And thirsty people like you end up sometime drinking sewage water and corrupted water. Thirsty people have a tendency in their desperation to grasp that which is not healthy. And Jesus looked at her and said, as you've given me water, I would love to give you water. And I have water to give you that if you drink, you'll never thirst again. And arrested now by him, epiphanies are not always instantaneous. Often they're in fits and starts. They come in pieces. The Bible said she looked at him and she said, you're a prophet. And he was, but that wasn't all he was. She saw him as a Jew, and in that moment, he could only be a Jew to her and ask for a cup of water and heal her graciously on that wise. Then, as a prophet, he could minister to her about her past and her future. But the Bible said it was only when she went hurriedly back to her village. This is so beautiful. As she was telling people about this man that had just told her everything about her life, the Bible says she talked herself right into an epiphany, and it hit her. Miles from Jesus, it hit her who he was, and she celebrated that epiphany by sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with a Samaritan village. When she saw him as a Jew, he was a Jew. When she saw him 
as a rabbi and a prophet. He was a rabbi and a prophet. When she saw him as Messiah, he could become Messiah. But all of it was measured by her own eyes. I used the scripture last week as Reverend John led us in our end-of-the-year bowl-burning service. It was really a wonderful service. But I, I was compelled to remember Ephesians, the third chapter, where Paul said, Now unto the one, listen, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all we could ask or think. You want to know the divine capacity that exists in you and in the world? Paul said, just measure as high as you can measure. Think as big as you can think. Ask as much as you can ask. And then look at the domain above that mark. God is able to do exceeding and abundantly above everything you could ever ask or think. According to the power that works in you. There is this responsibility on our part. Someone pointed out Wednesday night as we were talking about Epiphany and Midrash, and it was really a profound thing, that all three of the Epiphany scriptures, Jesus is passive. The Epiphany comes because people assert themselves. The Magi come to Jesus. Jesus' mother and people bring him water pots. The baptism, he is being baptized. Jesus is passive in all of those things, representing the active passiveness of God to always put God's self in approximation to us. But there is, for epiphany to take place, there is something that has to happen on our end. Juxtaposed between two thieves, Jesus lost his life, and even in the losing of his life, this difference between presence and manifestation, between Emmanuel and epiphany, between Christmas and revelation, Jesus Historians say could have been no more than fingertip to fingertip, three feet from two men. And, and what a juxtaposition when we see these two men mocking and deriding Jesus throughout the entire horrible experience. And then one whispers, would you please remember me? Would you please remember? Would you take the members of my life that are so broken apart in so many pieces and would you put me back together? And the Bible said equidistant from Jesus was a fellow on the left who mocked him and said, you're not who you say you are, and if you were, you ought to get yourself off the cross and take us with you. Two men, a few feet from Jesus, experiencing the same presence, but the manifestation, the epiphany depended upon their eyesight. It reminds me of the night before when Philip looked at him, a longtime disciple, and so confused, he said, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. We don't know what you mean that you're leaving us and it's going to be good for us. Please show us the way. Jesus said, Philip, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And you know this. I love that. So much of spirituality is the art of remembering Philip literally looked at Jesus and said, we do not know the way. Jesus said, you do know the way. Most good spirituality and most good spiritual direction, this is why I love Midrash on Wednesday night so much more than a lecture-type sermon, because the reality that I've learned, Jeff, in leading Midrash at this church is that 99% of the good stuff is already in us. 
And the best spiritual director is just foster and nurture and bring that out, just like the best therapist. Jesus said, you do know the way. You have undersold yourself. Philip looked at him and said, Lord, but you show us the Father. Show us God, please. And Jesus smiled and said, have I been so long time with you that you haven't known me, Philip? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's really an interesting line there. Have I been so long time with you? And I do recognize that there is a danger in being a short time with God. Roots have not penetrated the earth of life very far, and there's the capacity to be um, prone to many things. But Jesus didn't look at Philip and say, Philip, your problem, you're missing. The lack of epiphany is because you've been with me a short time. He said, the problem here is you've been with me so long. Because a long time in faith, a long time in religion, a long time in spirituality can create cataracts of cynicism and young couples can leave Northern California looking for a new start and find themselves on the back row of a church saying we're never getting involved again. Why? Because they've been with the church a short time? No, because they've been with the church a long time. Time has a way of bringing cynicism and I've seen too much, I know too much, I don't care. I finally saw the way the sausage was made and I, I, I don't wanna imbibe anymore. Have, I've been so long time with you that you haven't seen me. Reminds me in Revelation three, when the Lord spoke to the seven churches of Asia, the church of Asia, uh, one of the churches of Asia Minor was the church at Ephesus. And the Lord spoke to them distinctly and said, I, I want you to know that you think you're rich, but you're poor. I want you to know that you think you see, but you're blind. And I counsel you to buy of me eye salve that I might touch your eyes and that you might see. Really interesting thing about Ephesus. Ephesus was um, not only a trade center and a commercial center in Asia Minor, Ephesus was also a medical center. And interestingly, in the space of time around the time of Jesus, doctors there had actually created an eye salve for weary travelers whose eyes had been blistered by the sun, wind, and sand of the deserts around that area. As the travelers would come through on their way to one of the continents, um, as they would pass through Ephesus, they could go to primal ophthalmologist there and they could get this eye salve and the eye salve would literally heal them in a matter of a couple days and they could be back on their trip. And it's interesting that the angel spoke to the church at Ephesus and said, I counsel you the saved. You're one of the earliest churches. This is the church that history tells us Mary, the mother of Jesus, actually lived out her life. This was the church founded by Paul and probably pastored by the apostle John. This was a incredible church and yet the Lord finishes by saying not only would I give you eyes or eye salve for your eyes to take you know you, you sit on the back row of that church like the Bartons did and somehow whatever grace point is became eye salve to eyes and someone goes from saying I never getting involved again to standing up and saying I'd love to take care of the children what happens people who've been long time with God sometime need eye salve the beauty of that text is that at the end, the Lord said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's a profound illustration. 
This was a church that was doing the sacraments, having church, passing the plate, having potlucks, paying their tithe. And Jesus said, I'm standing on your doorstep. You've learned to go through rote. You've learned to sing the songs and turn the pages and just do the thing. And time, no, no insidious evil, no willful decision. But time has a way of growing calluses on what once was a tender place to where you can even have church and go through an entire service with Jesus, not at the altar, not in the pulpit, not in the pew, on the doorstep. Eyes. She looked at him and she said, I want to know one thing. I want to know where you buried my Lord. I want to know, because I know you stole him. And, and that's one of the things that I've learned about being a Christian these 49 years. Um, sometimes it's Jesus who steals Jesus for me. Sometimes the Jesus that I've known loves the Jesus that I don't know loves me enough to take the Jesus that I've known away from me. And Mary looked at him not knowing it was Jesus and said, I want to know, you stole his body. Where did you put it? And as she wept, and that's another reason sometimes we don't see. Sometimes it doesn't appear. Sometimes we don't see. Tears can dim eyes. Tears can. I remember one of my German shepherds, a, a beautiful dog named Angel ran out of the fence one day and she was she was my best friend we went everywhere together and a car hit her and as it drug her she she survived the accident but as it drug her when I got to her and the people pulled the car off and I reached down to her I mean my baby was hurting and as I reached down and touched her she locked bit my hand and almost broke it and I didn't get angry of course I didn't get angry because sometimes pain blurs eyes. Tears can so fill the eyes. Fear can do it. The Bible says one day his disciples were in a boat and they were crossing over to the other side. He had put them in the boat and made them go to the other side. And as they were going, the Bible says the storm came and their boat was filling up with water. And then this illustrious story says Jesus came walking on the water, walking on the very thing troubling them. Jesus comes walking. And the way you hope the story is going to wrap up is that now in the midst of the trouble, Jesus comes walking and the day is saved. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when they saw him walking on the water, they thought it was a demon. Man, fear, tears, pain, past wounds, so many cataracts that can actually make Jesus look like a demon, the very thing coming to save you, you think is the enemy. It's Jacob wrestling with God at Jabok, fighting, tooth and toenail, clawing, scratching, fighting, and then the light dawns, and the Bible says as there was an epiphany and the light shone in the early morning, something about this one he had been fighting with all night long he saw, and he realized it was God, and now he embraces and says, don't let me go till you bless me. It's all a matter of the eyes. And sometimes, I don't know how the eyes have, I don't know where the Bartons' eyes have come from. I 
I don't know where your ISAV comes from. I don't know how many of you at the beginning of this year need a good dose of ISAV. But there are those epiphanies instigated by so many different things, but for her as she knelt at his feet, he looked at her as she wept, begging him to tell her where he had put the body, and as he looked at her, he, he whispered, finally, he couldn't take it. He just drops these hints. He said, Mary. And something about the tenor, the resonance of his voice, when she heard Mary, I salve. And she looked up through those blurry tears, and it's interesting Sometimes tears blur and dim. Sometimes tears become a prism through which you see more clearly than you've ever seen. And as her tears turned to ISAF, she looked up. <sighs> the question, was he present five minutes before? Was her heart healed in his presence? Because presence doesn't do it. God's always present. God is everywhere in all things. The healing comes when scales fell from Saul's eyes. Blinded. And yet in his blindness, after being knocked off of his donkey and hearing Jesus say, I am Jesus, why persecutest thou me, Saul? Knowest thou not that it's hard to kick against the goads? Blind for three days. In his blindness, he finally sees and scales drop off of his eyes. And Mary looks up and she cries, Rabboni. And peace like a river floods her heart. Epiphany. Now, unto the one who's able to do exceeding and abundantly above all we could ask or think, according to the power that works in us. James said, you have not because you ask not. And when you do ask, at times, you ask amiss, you see wrong. What I have found with God is what Mary found, and I'll close with this. Life naturally brings cataracts and calluses to the eyes and heart. It just does. But always available is this healing balm, and it comes from the most innocuous of places at times. I know the stories that I read from the Gospels um, can be almost overwhelming because we're not there in physical proximation with Jesus and he's not walking on water and he's not resurrected from a grave and he's not there for us to wrap our arms around. There was a fella who on the day of his resurrection chose not to be with the disciples. His name was Thomas. And on that night when Jesus appeared to the disciples and showed them his side that was wounded and his hands that were printed by nails, and they all believed, and they ran back and they found Thomas, the absent disciple, and they said, we've just seen the Lord. And Thomas said, how do you know it was him? And they said, well, he pulled back his robe when there was a print where they put the, the spear in his hands. And listen to what Thomas said. Thomas said, I cannot live vicariously through your experience. I, anecdotal testimonies can be like the salt lick in the field that makes the horse thirsty, but they cannot be the water 
Our stories can never be enough. Our stories, our experiences with God are what Frederick Buechner calls certain uncertain things. They are certain to the extent that too many of them have happened to us for us to doubt them, but they're uncertain because for anybody who hears them, they're just a story and they can be dubious. It's not their story. So sometimes you just ponder things in your heart and you don't even share the story because it's for nobody else but for yourself. But there are stories in all of our life, I have them and you have them, where the one who stands at the door, the one who is relegated from that central place, that altar of our heart, out to the doorstep, little by little the eyes get calloused and we don't see. We think we see, but we're blind. But graciously somehow, God comes into our life with eye salve, with clues, somehow, he tells us all things about ourselves. He tells us that we've been married five times and living with a guy. He looks at Philip and says, you do know this. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, he looks at Mary and he says, Mary, just that, Mary. For Peter, the epiphany came. It was built into the prophecy of his failure. He said, Simon, you're going to deny me just like all the rest. Simon said, no, I won't. Jesus said, before the rooster crows the second time, you will deny me three times. And when that old rooster lifted its voice and cried the second time, the great wall of China fell and Atlantis rose up out of the sea in Simon's heart. And the Bible said he was arrested. I don't know what they are for you, but there have been those rooster crowing moments in my life when my darkness and my calluses and my doubts with the warbling of the rooster's gracious voice as it rises up and projects from that red-crested beak. Life gives me those rooster-crowing moments, those whispered Mary moments, those cups of water moment where I salve is applied, my eyes are tenderized, my heart is tenderized, and I come back to the words of Paul I count not my life dear. I don't take myself overly seriously because I want to finish my course with joy. The Apostle Paul said, I've been behind the scenes and I've seen how the sausage is made from the Gentiles to the Jews on all sides of the fence. And Paul said, I have determined that I'm not going to take myself too seriously because I really want to finish my course with joy. I don't want to finish my course, course one more old hard-bitten person talking about how much they've seen and I want to finish with joy. I don't want to limp across the finish line, sardonic and biting and regretful. I want to finish with joy. I want to finish with fresh eyes. I want to move through the first naivete of childishness. I want to be able to wrestle through that hard season of doubt and question and callous and cataract. When the questions don't line up with the answers, I want to be able to wrestle through that dark night of the soul and I want to be able to come to a second naivete that is not childish but is childlike, that returns me to that place where Jesus said, except you become as a child, you can't see the kingdom. Isn't that lovely? You can't see it. It's all about the eyes. So how do we come back again to second naivete? Well, there are these rooster crowing moments. There are those moments when Thomas said, I will not believe until I see. There are those moments when somehow God holds out the divine hand, pulls back the robe, 
Thomas says, my Lord, my God. And the calluses are shaved off. Beekner says those moments generally happen as the invisible manifests itself in the visible. I think of the alphabet of letters, literally. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all 26 of them. I think of how poetry, history, the wisdom of the sages and the holiness of the saints, all of this invisible comes down to us dressed out in their visible alphabetic drab. And this makes me think of incarnation Breath becoming speech through teeth and tongue, spirit becoming words, silence becoming prayer, the holy dream becoming the holy face. I'm speaking of the humdrum events of our lives. The everyday events of our lives is this alphabet of grace. I'm thinking of grace. I'm thinking of the power beyond all power, the power that holds all things in manifestation. And I'm thinking of this power as ultimately a Christ-making power, which is to say a power that makes Christ of us all. A power, which is to say a power that works through the drab and hubbub of our lives. Graciously leading us, guiding us. In either case, whether destroyed or made, needless to say, this process of Christ making is never to be thought of as painless. I'm thinking of salvation and I'm thinking of the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. A man goes hurtling through the universe to the outermost limits of the universe, the outermost limits of space and time. Through huge crevices of racing light, he finally passes beyond space and time altogether. And there in the transcendence, there in the midnight of the movie theater, watching him, wondering as he floats in the amniotic fluid of the divine, what fantastic secret now will he discover there at the very secret of the fantastic itself? And then comes the movie's most interesting moment. Because when his space pod finally comes to rest, what the man steps out to discover is not some blinding cosmic revelation, some science fiction marvel, but a room. He steps out into an almost everyday room of floor and ceiling and walls with a table in it and some chairs and a half-filled bookshelf and a vase of flowers and a bed. And in this room, the man dies and is born again. And at the heart of reality, there is a room. At the heart of reality, there is always a room, a heart beating life into everything that lives and dies. My prayer for this church, 2017, was a tough one. It toughened and it threatened and calluses come with those kinds of abrasions. But my hope and my sense of 2018 is that we will move from Emmanuel and God with us into full epiphany. And whatever cataracts need to be removed, whatever calluses need to be shaved down, whatever it takes to come back to tenderness, as Frederick, or rather Richard Rohr said, the young person who does not weep is a fool or is a barbarian. The young man or woman who doesn't weep, who doesn't see, who lives in a first naivete and doesn't mature, that young person is a barbarian. But the old man or woman who doesn't laugh is a fool. And here we are together and I have never been with a more lovely group of people doing more lovely things for God.
And I pray, as I think about this year, that this year, Michael, will be a year of ISAV, tenderizing, and hurts and fears and demons on the horizon all of a sudden will come clear, and we will say, Rabboni, oh my, he was there all the time. I just needed a touch for my eyes. Why don't we close our physical eyes now as we end this service? And with the close of our physical eyes, offer our spiritual eyes and heart up to God. We offer our hearts for healing. We offer our cynicism for tenderness. We offer our bruises to one who will not snuff out the dying wick and who will not lean too hard on a bruised reed lest it breaks. We offer our hearts to one who stands at the doorstep and tells Martha, go in the house and tell Mary, I know she's disappointed with me and I know she's hurting because Lazarus died, but tell her I'm out here and I sure would like to see her. The one who stands at the door and knocks. The one who counsels us, sweet Christ, the one who counsels us to buy of him eye salve, that our eyes might be healed. Tenderize us. May 2018 be a tender year. May we move through the darkness into second naivete. Rows and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air. I've looked at clouds that way. But now they only block the sun, they rain and snow on everyone. So many things I would have done, but clouds got in the way. I've looked at life from both sides now. I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down, but still somehow, it's clouds illusions I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. Return our eyes back to the eyes of children and may 2018 be a precious place for this congregation and these members. Dear God, bring us back to a childlike faith. We pray all of this in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen.